Would you pray with me? Father in heaven, we have in front of us uh, a passage from your word that comes from a dark time in your, in your people's history. Um, and, and a dark time that, in many ways, your word makes very clear that they had brought on themselves. Um, Father, we thank you uh, that this is in your word to us. We, we thank you um, that you have told us um, that you are not only the God of the good times, um, that you are not only a God who is near uh, to those uh, who draw near to you, but, but also a God who runs after and pursues those who run away and turn away from you. We thank you that you are the God of the exile and the God of the wilderness, uh, that you are the God um, who is full of grace and mercy, who is abounding in steadfast love and faithfulness. Uh, and we thank you uh, that you are a God whose steadfast love and faithfulness steadfast love and faithfulness extend even to those um, who would turn away from you. Father, you know the heaviness that is on our hearts, uh, each of us, uh, each woman and man and, and child uh, that's that's in this room. You know the burdens that we carry with us. When we come into this place, you know that you know the adversities that we face from outside and the weaknesses that we know of uh, from inside, and the rebellion even that we see in our own hearts. And we lift all of that up to you, and we ask you to save us and to defend us, uh, to be our shield, to be our refuge and our rock. Um, even as we began uh, this worship service by by being reminded, for you alone, our soul waits in silence. Father, I pray uh, as we come uh, to this passage today um, that your spirit would open up the eyes of our hearts uh, and the ears of our hearts. Would you soften those hearts? Um, Would you do for us now again, anew, afresh, um, what we're going to see Ezekiel talking about in these, in these next weeks to, 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 to come, giving us a new spirit, giving us a new heart, um, restoring and refreshing our hearts of flesh um, when they would be stony against you. Um, I pray uh, that you will do this um, even among us this afternoon, and I pray uh, that the words of my mouth and the meditations of our hearts would be acceptable in your sight, O Lord, our rock and our redeemer. Amen. So, going way back in this church, many of us have in various ways have been impacted um, by the ministry of a guy named Jack Miller. Uh, He was a pastor, he was an author. Um, He he had a great way of expressing the gospel in in a lot of different ways. Um, The one that I want to mention today um, was something that he said uh, to someone who was um, grumpy, uh, facing a a time of uh, spiritual dryness, um, looking for the Lord's goodness uh, in, 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 in their life. Um, and what he said to them sounds strange. He said, cheer up. You're much worse than you think you are. Um, this 
passage that's in front of us today. Sherry read chapter 8, verses 1 through 6 uh, of Ezekiel, but we're really going to be looking at chapters 8 and 9. Um, these are really chapters that talk about just how bad sin can be, um, just how deeply we need a Savior. Um, and I hope that by the end of it, I'm able to convey to you why it can be the case that you can read something like this. And these are dark chapters. Uh, these are chapters which, at least within these two chapters, there is not a whole lot of hope. Um, I think we'll find some, but the, the real springs of hope in Ezekiel come later. Um, but I hope that, that by the end of them, we can understand why it is that, that even in these chapters, we can say to ourselves, cheer up, lift up your heads. You're a lot worse than you think you are. Uh, because the counterpoint uh, to that statement is that God is a lot more faithful than you think that he is. Um, let me remind you of what we're doing in the book of Ezekiel. We are spending this fall, um, and we're really talking about the presence of the Lord. That's what we want to understand. We want to talk about the presence of the Lord and the difference that it makes that we worship a God who from the very beginning and throughout Scripture and throughout all of his history with us makes it his purpose to be present with his people. And we have talked about that presence as being the ever-present, awe-inspiring power of God to give life and strength to his people. That's the concept that we're trying to unpack this fall, that the presence of the Lord is the ever-present, awe-inspiring power of God to give life and strength to his people. We're using the book of Ezekiel as a lens through which to look at it. Uh, we will not be touching on every word in the book of Ezekiel. Um, that would take a very long time. Um, we are actually going to get through it. If you turn to the, the back of your order of worship, um, I'm not sure which page, but uh, there is an outline back there that we hope will be helpful for you that will show you the approach that we're taking. Um, it can kind of show you where we are now um, and where we're headed. Um, and the different themes that we'll be touching on as we go through, uh, through this book. Um, it says in there that we're looking at chapters 8 through 10 this week. I'm actually going to look just at chapters 8 through 9. Um, here's what you need to know about where we are. So you remember that we have begun with this initial vision that Ezekiel had of the glory of God, the presence of God. We use chapter 1 to kind of unpack this concept of the awe-inspiring, uh, ever-present power of God to give life and strength to his people. Then we looked at Ezekiel's call, um, and then last week we looked at the first of the sign acts that God acts, asked him to perform as a prophet. And we saw this amazing scene in which Ezekiel goes from playing the role of God, turned against his people, to the role of the people themselves, to the role of the sacrifice. And we said, isn't this amazing that right here in Ezekiel, we see one person playing the role of God and man and sacrifice. And we see Jesus right there in the book of Ezekiel. Um, now we are turning to chapter 8. And chapters 8 through 11 are kind of all one unit. 8 through 11 is one vision that Ezekiel has. You can tell this because right at the beginning... Um, it says uh, that he was sitting in his house, so he's in Babylon, okay, he's in his house in exile in Babylon. Um, he gives us the date again 
Ezekiel's really like nice to us and telling us like exactly what day these things happened. So we know this is about 14 months after he was called. So there he is, he's in his house with the elders of Judah sitting before me, and the hand of the Lord God fell upon me there. And, and that initiates this series of visions that he has. And then if you turn to the end of chapter 11, the very end of it, uh, the end of, of verse 24, it says, Then the vision that I had went up for me, and I told the exiles all the things that the Lord had shown me. So that's going to be the end, right? So from 8 to 11, he's having this series of visions, and then at the end of it, he's going to tell them all what he saw, okay? Um, what he is going to see um, in, in broad strokes is what has been happening in the temple, um, back in Jerusalem, leading up to exile, and, and maybe even still. You remember that Ezekiel, uh, Ezekiel had been deported to Babylon, but there was still yet to come, like, the big deportation, like the, the big destruction of Jerusalem, uh, the big destruction of the, of the temple. He's going to tell us what's going on in the temple. Um, in chapter 10 and 11, where Bradley will be next week, we're going to see that it's so bad that it actually causes the glory of the Lord to depart from the temple. Um, which, we'll have lots more time to unpack this next week, but that's about as devastating a thing as could possibly happen uh, to Israel for the glory of the Lord uh, to leave. But then, we will see one particular note of hope, one particular promise um, that Ezekiel receives in chapter 11, where God begins to make this promise of giving a new spirit and a new heart. So that's kind of the outline for the next. It's gonna, we'll, we'll be here for three weeks, chapters 8 through 11. Here's what we're going to see today, just in chapters 8 through 9. As I said, in these chapters, it's kind of all bad news. Um, it, it's just relating, you know, what is going on in, in the temple. Um, what we're going to see is that as bad as things were in the, in the previous chapters, you know, when God talked about the unfaithfulness of the people generally and how they had set up high places to worship pagan gods, um, as bad as all that was, it's much worse. The rot runs much deeper than we saw then because it, it's extended right to the very center of their religious life, right into the temple. There's idolatry taking place in the very temple of God. That's what we're going to see in chapter 8. In chapter 9, we're going to see that God is not going to leave that idolatry unpunished. Uh, judgment is coming. But then the last thing that we're going to need uh, to spend some time on is to ask ourselves, so in the midst of that, in the midst of two chapters that are pretty unremittingly giving us the bad news, how can we still say that God's presence is something that's giving life and strength to his people. So we're going to see the travesty of idolatry. We're going to see that God will not leave that idolatry unpunished. And then we're going to talk about where there might be hope that God is still a God who gives life and strength to his people. So here's what Ezekiel sees in chapter 8. So what Sherry read... Um, Remember, uh, in verse 2, it says, I looked, and behold, a form that had the appearance 
of a man. And basically what Ezekiel tells you is, I saw the same thing that I saw back in chapter 1, right? Again, I'm in the presence of the glory of the Lord. Again, I can't even quite describe it. Remember back in chapter 1, something that had the form of the likeness of the appearance of a man? It's like, not quite sure what I'm seeing, but this is sort of like what it was. Now, I do think it's kind of funny that he says in, 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 in verse 3, uh, he says, he put out the form of a hand, so can't quite describe this, but something like a hand, and then, no qualifiers here, um, took me by a lock of my head. He's very clear, whatever this was, grabbed me by the hair and pulled me to Jerusalem. I kind of have in, 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 in my head the, the vision of, you know in Harry Potter, when they, when they go places by means of port key, and like, you touch this object and you just you get sucked into it by whatever body part touches it first? That's kind of what it seems like is happening to Ezekiel. He's just getting drugged um, by the form of a hand to Jerusalem. And what's he going to see? Well, Sherry read the first thing that he sees. The first thing that he sees um, he's at the north of the altar gate. So, one interesting thing about these, these this, he's going to see four different visions. And with each of them, he's going to move closer and closer to the center of the temple. So he's starting outside of the gate, north of the altar gate in the entrance. And he says, he says he sees this image of jealousy. We don't really know exactly what this is. Um, we know it's some kind of idol. Um, God says, son of man, do you see what they're doing? The great abominations that the house of Israel are committing here to drive me far from my sanctuary. And then the ominous note, but you will see still greater abominations. It's going to get worse. It's really interesting that this image, rather than being identified by its name, you know, whatever god or goddess this is, 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 is identified as an image of jealousy. So as to get right to the point right to the point of what is wrong with idolatry. What is, what, is, what is wrong with worshiping something other than God? It inspires jealousy. God doesn't say this is an image of wrath, although you could certainly infer that his wrath is coming from these chapters. He doesn't say that it's an image of displeasure. He says jealousy. He says this is a betrayal. Israel's story, every time Israel tells its story, and they retell the story a lot through the Old Testament, and every time they retell the story, they always go back to a beginning where God moves first, where God calls them first, where he saves them first. I saved you out of Egypt, out of the house of slavery, right? That's the beginning. God is always beginning his story by saying, before you did anything, before you were anything, I was a father to you. And in other places, he gets more intimate and says, I have been as a husband to you. And for you to turn away from me, the God who made you, the God who saved you, the God who sustained you in the wilderness, the God who brought you into the promised land, for you to turn away from the God who has done all of those things and been father and husband to you is an act of betrayal. The best way that he can describe what it provokes in him is jealousy, that deep sickness in the stomach. It is a thing, he says, to drive me from my sanctuary. 
makes sense of why it is that God is about to leave. The glory is about to depart. And yet, he says, you will see even worse. Vision number two. Um, he says, look, go over to this wall, and there's a little hole in the wall. And he says, go ahead and dig in the wall, right? And he's digging further into the center of the temple. And he digs in, and what he sees um, is he sees uh, the elders of Israel worshiping images, it says, of creeping things, of, of loathsome beasts, um, of, of animals. They're probably getting this stuff uh, from Egypt, mostly. If, if, if you remember the, the story of the plagues in Egypt, those, those plagues were all attacks on the gods of Egypt, right? Because Egypt worshipped the Nile. They worshipped frogs. They worshipped, you know, all these different all these different things that were attacked in those, in those plagues. Um, now, inside the temple, God is worshiping, uh, excuse me, the people are worshiping these false gods. Um, it's kind of ironic. They, they constantly, as they're, as they're making their way to the promised land, they're constantly complaining and grumbling and saying, it'd be better if we went back to Egypt. And God keeps saying, don't go back to Egypt. And here, it's like they've found a way to do it. They found a way to go back to Egypt in their hearts. Um, and interestingly, what they're saying inside of the temple is the Lord does not see us. The Lord has forsaken the land. It's ironic. The things that they're worshiping have eyes but can't see. But the Lord sees all of this. And they're saying he alone doesn't see He's forsaken us. He's left. He doesn't know what we're doing. That's the second problem with idolatry. Idolatry provokes jealousy in God, but idolatry also um, gives up on God. It says he's forsaken us. He's not here anymore. He doesn't see. And it turns instead to things that he has made uh, to look for hope. Vision 3 is really brief. There are women weeping for Tammuz. Uh, Tammuz was this Sumerian hero. There's this whole mythology about this guy who reigned for 36,000 years as a, as a shepherd king, and then he died. Um, and so he had all of these foreign cults that would mourn for him. Israel is joining in with these foreign cults. And then Vision 4 is maybe the worst. Now he's in the very center. He brought me into the inner court of the house of the Lord. And what does he see there? He sees 25 men, and even though they're in the center of the house of the Lord, they're not facing in to worship God. They've faced outward. They're worshiping the rising sun. The, the gate of the temple faced east, so if you turn your back on the center of the temple and look outward, you're looking east. And they're bowing down uh, to the sun. And God says, it's not just that. It's not just that they're worshiping something that I made. He says, is it too light a thing for the house of Judah to commit the abominations that they commit here, that they should fill the land with violence and provoke me still further to anger? And there we see another problem with idolatry, that we become like what we worship. Um, if we worship 
power, then we become tyrants, if given the chance. If we worship money, um, then we become greedy and obsessed with material things. We become like what we worship. Um, the gods of Egypt were violent gods. Um, there are all these stories in their mythologies. Um, they're actually really entertaining to read. Um, all of these stories about the gods doing battle with each other, right, and fighting for dominion, and then fighting with humans. It's constant violence. Um, it is a, a way of understanding the universe as, as being a universe that operates on the principle of violence, of survival of the fittest, of might makes right. And Israel, in turning to the worship of these gods, has visited that on their own land. They have filled the land with violence, with injustice. So that is what Ezekiel sees going on in the temple. The next thing he hears is that God is not going to leave this unpunished. In chapter 9, these seven angelic forms show up, referred to as the executioners of the city. Six of them have weapons in their hands for slaughter. One of them um, basically has a pen. So he's got a writing case. Um, and God sends the one with the pen uh, through Jerusalem, and he says, pass through the city, through Jerusalem, and put a mark on the foreheads of the men who sigh and groan over all the abominations that are committed in it. And to the others, the ones that have the swords, he says, pass through the city after him and strike. Your eye shall not spare, and you shall show no pity. Now, that should sound like something. That should sound like a pretty familiar story. Um, remember the Passover? The tenth plague, right? The tenth plague, God commanded Israel to put marks on their doors. Um, the blood of a perfect spotless lamb. Um, and then sent the angel of death through Egypt to kill the firstborn son of everyone who didn't have that mark. This is, this is a deliberate echo of that story, only now it's Israel that's on the receiving end of the angel of death, or six of them. Ezekiel responds to this with this desperate intercessory prayer. Verse 8, he says, And while they were striking and I was left alone, I fell on my face and cried, Ah, Lord God, will you destroy all the remnant of Israel in the outpouring of your wrath on Jerusalem? Then he said to me, The guilt of the house of Israel and Judah is exceedingly great. The land is full of blood and the city full of injustice, for they say the Lord has forsaken the land and the Lord does not see. As for me, my eye will not spare, nor will I have pity. I will bring their deeds upon their heads. It is worth pausing to note that, that it is a good thing that we worship a God of justice. That is, it is a good thing that we worship a God that will not let evil go unpunished, that will not simply let evil win the day. We would not want to live in a world without that kind of God, where evil would uh, win the day in the end. But here, this is all bad news for Israel. 
The last verse says, Behold, the man clothed in linen with the writing, linen with the writing case of his waist brought back words, saying, I have done as you commanded me. And it's this ominous, you know, the guy with the pen, he's done. He's, he's done his work. Um, the ones with the swords are still out there. Gives you kind of a sense uh, of, of how many people there were uh, to put this mark on their, on their forehead. Now, I promised that we were going to ask, is there any good news in this? How, how, do we, how do we read this? I think it's pretty clear how we read this and say, we're much worse than we thought we were. Um, idolatry is something that infects all of our hearts. All of us are tempted. When it seems like God has forsaken us, when it seems like God is gone and isn't looking and isn't listening and doesn't care, all of us are tempted to put our trust in something else. It is the way of all of humanity. Um, and here we see how seriously God takes that. So it's easy to see how this is telling us, yeah, we're, we're worse than we thought we were. Um, why would that be a reason to cheer up? Why would that be a reason? How would we find God giving life and strength to his people here? Um, you know, I think... Our normal tendency, normal tendency of, of, of most people, um, when asking this question of, you know, how bad am I, really? Like when asking questions about morality and how does it work, the, the thing that you'll most often hear uh, from people is, look, I know I'm not perfect, but come on, I'm not that bad either, right? I'm not a murderer. Uh, I think at the end of the day, uh, I've lived a pretty good life, a life that's, that's good enough. And if there is a God, then surely he'll look on that, and that'll be, and that'll be enough. Um, these chapters should help dissuade us of that. If not these chapters, the Sermon on the Mount, you know, when Jesus speaks directly to those of us that haven't committed murder and says, yeah, but if you've ever been angry at someone, that's basically the same thing. Or, or to those of us that haven't committed adultery and say, but have you looked at someone with lust? Because it's basically the same thing. And, and then Jesus really lowers the boom at the end of the Sermon on the Mount when he says, you know, the standard is be perfect as your Father in heaven is perfect. Um, that's, that's the standard. The flip side of thinking that my life is basically good enough, you know, thinking that God is going to grade on a curve in some way, is that if that's really the way that things work, then it does mean that there's some standard that I do have to hit, right? I do have to live a life that is good enough. And this is where the gospel has really good news to offer. For those of us who have come face to face with the fact that whatever the standard is, no matter how low we might set the bar, we all fail at some point in thought and word and deed. And for those of us that are sensitive enough to, sensitive enough to see that we fail daily in thought and word and deed, the gospel offers real hope. God is not grading on a curve. He demands perfection. He demands holiness. He is a God of perfect justice. But the holiness 
that he demands, the perfect righteousness that he demands, has been fulfilled by someone else. If there's one note of hope in, in, this, in this passage, where was it? Well, you, you know, it was, it was the place where there was someone putting a mark on the heads of those who mourn, who, who, who mourn at idolatry, who sigh and groan. Um, who do we know that mourned? at idolatry in the heart of Jerusalem? Who do we know that was provoked to tears uh, and even righteous anger at the corruption taking place in the temple? And who do we know who right after that went outside Jerusalem and looked back and mourned, said, oh, Jerusalem, Jerusalem, if only I could take you under my wings as a mother hen takes her chicks, but you wouldn't have it. There is one that is truly mourned. Why is that good news for us? You, you know what the mark was? Here's something that's kind of wild. What it literally says is not put a mark. It's kind of an idiomatic way of saying put a mark, where, where they would say put a tough. Tough was the last letter of the Hebrew alphabet. It was a way of saying, put a mark. But literally what he says is, put a toff on their foreheads. The toff looks like a T. Um, it is a mark of the cross. Zechariah 12.10 reminds us that God gives us the grace to mourn that God gives us the gift of the godly sorrow that Bradley talked about when we confessed sins earlier, the godly sorrow that brings salvation and no regret. He gives us that by bringing us to the foot of the cross. Zechariah 12 is a promise. God says, I will pour out on the house of David and the inhabitants of Jerusalem, a spirit of grace and pleas for mercy, so that when they look on me, on him whom they have pierced, they shall mourn for him as one mourns for an only child and weep bitterly over him as one weeps over a firstborn. This passage here today would say to you, on the one hand, if you are comfortable with idolatry, which most of us are a lot of the time. Most of us are very comfortable uh, with the things that our city and our culture worships, and we know how to play the game. If you're comfortable with idolatry, there's a great warning here. If you are one who is mourning over what idolatry does, over the blast radius of sin, then there is comfort there is assurance. And if you are one who knows that you need to mourn more than you do, that you need to be less comfortable with idolatry, then there's a place to go. It's the place that we're invited to go every week when we come to this table, when we eat this bread and this wine, and we proclaim the Lord's death until he comes.
before we come here, let's pray.